The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. My guest today is Thomas Peel, the author of a book that has played out in the news in the past several years. Uh, really an astonishing case and very dicey. Tom's book, Killing the Messenger, is a true story of Chauncey Bailey, an Oakland, California newspaper editor. It's the story of a business enterprise, but that also was a religious cult known as your black Muslim bakery who were involved in killing Chauncey Bailey. Tom says his work life changed radically after 2007 after this 2007 murder of a man I'd never met. That's his quote. Tom, along with a group of journalists, were incensed by the lack of attention that Bailey's murder received, and they joined together in this loosely formed association they named the Chauncey Bailey Project. They were so frustrated. He'll tell you about that. Tom has chronicled the details in Killing the Messenger, but first a little about Tom. He began his career at a weekly newspaper in New York in 1983, and he since worked for seven daily newspapers. He's currently an investigative reporter for the Bay Area News Group, and um, which publishes newspapers surrounding San Francisco. He's a recipient of over 50 journalism awards. He holds a bachelor's in journalism and a master's in creative writing, and he lectures at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Junior Journalism and co-teaches a class on public records reporting, which I want to get into at a, at a later time, Tom. So welcome to the show, sure. Tom. Oh, good morning, Francie. Thank you for having me. Thank and you thank you for being here. I'm, I'm so excited about your book. But, I, but you have such an interesting background. I'd just like to have you tell people a little bit about how you got from 1983 in New York to California working on the Chauncey Bailey Project. Sure. What was the process you went through? You know, when I started uh, working for that little newspaper, little weekly newspaper in New York in 1983, I just kind of dropped out of college and didn't have a lot of direction. And I am one of these sort of traditional newspaper reporters who fell in love with a line of work and have never really given it up, um, despite all the changes that have gone on in our industry, especially in the last five or six years. But I uh, just fell in love with journalism, went back to college, finished my uh, my BA pretty quickly, started uh, working actually at Newsday in the high school sports department of all things on mm-hmm. Long Island when I was finishing my bachelor's degree at Long Island University. And then I, uh, you know, I went uh, to work for a small daily newspaper in central New Jersey, uh, 
in the late 80s um, and moved around after that uh, a couple of other states. Came back to New Jersey. I was a reporter in um, Atlantic City for six and a half years, which has a you know long, long history of uh, an incredibly corrupt government. So it was a lot of fun exactly. to, uh, to poke around there. Anybody who's watched Boardwalk Empire probably knows that that's uh, that rather ancient history is uh, that's portrayed in that show is all based on fact and. I covered Atlantic City at a time when it was going through a uh, so-called second phase of casino development. There was a lot of money in town, so there was a lot of people after the money and a lot of um, exciting investigative stories to work on because of that. And mm-hmm. then I uh, kind of... Atlantic City is a great place to have worked, but I kind of got a little burned out on it when I was there because it was so intense. And... Uh, Twelve years ago, I moved to California and started working for the Contra Costa Times in suburban San Francisco, and that has sort of morphed into a, uh, what you said in the introduction, the Bay Area News Group, which publishes a, uh, a, a host of daily newspapers surrounding San Francisco. And let me just say, uh, Tom, for people that might be interested in, in reading more about you and reading more about the book, um, the website is www.thomaspeele.com, T-O-M-T-H-O-M-A-S-P like Paul, E-E, Edward, Edward, L-E, Edward, dot com, um, because you have a picture on your website of you interviewing Norman Mailer in 2007, which is just priceless, I'm sure. You know that was um, that. I have to say that was a uh, that was a thrill. That was uh, less than a year before Mr. Mailer died, and I went into that that interview because I I write fairly frequently uh, for our book section, or I should say I did before I got in the having to dedicate every minute I had to writing my own book. And I was quite excited to interview Mr. Mailer, and I'll admit I was a little intimidated. Uh, kind of basing that on the Norman Mailer of, of old and his cantankerous <laughs> reputation, but he was uh, he was a he was a wonderful uh, gentleman in that interview. Um, it was about his last major uh, book, a uh, a fictional account of the childhood of Adolf Hitler called Castle in the Forest, mm. and it was a it was a fascinating interview. I'm I can't imagine that must have been. Uh... Really exciting, really exciting. It was. And then you got involved in this amazing case of Chauncey Bailey. And I'm, yep. I'm, I know that nobody that lives in, certainly in the San Francisco Bay Area, everybody has heard the, some of this story, but, but you have all the gritty details. And so tell me what happened. How did you get involved in that, and how did the Chauncey Bailey project uh, originate? Sure. Well, uh, for those who don't know, Chauncey Bailey was the editor of the Oakland Post, a small weekly newspaper catering to Oakland's African-American community. And on the morning of August 2nd, 2007, he was walking to work in downtown Oakland um, and a young man in a ski mask carrying a shotgun ran up to him uh, on a street corner and shot him three times, 
killed him almost instantly. And that immediately sent shockwaves, to use a cliche, through the uh, journalism community in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. Um, And it immediately reminded uh, many people about the last time a reporter was killed in this country uh, for his work on a local or, you know, domestic story. And that, of course, was an Arizona Republic reporter named Don Bowles, who died in a car bombing in Phoenix in 1976. Uh, he was lured to a place uh, by an anonymous phone call to a hotel downtown to meet a, to meet a source. Uh, he hung around. There was no source. He went back out to his car, got in, and some guys affiliated with a mafia outfit had put a, uh, a bomb under the car and blew it up. And he eventually died of his wounds and burns uh, several days later. And he so, was killed, And he was killed, Tom, because he was covering the mafia? Well, he was working on a story about connections between organized crime and business and civic leaders in Phoenix uh, doing land deals. Hmm. And... They killed him for it. They killed him to silence him. And at that point, a, a group of reporters from around the country, led by a rather legendary investigative reporter at Newsday named Bob Green, descended on Phoenix in mass. And their plan was uh, to finish what Bowles was working on and to send the message that if you kill one reporter, 20 reporters are going to show up and do a lot more journalism than that one now dead reporter mm-hmm. could do kind of like the idea of you know if if you if you mess with us if you kill one of ours yeah. uh, the scrutiny that you don't didn't want to occur is going to occur tenfold. Mm. So you know to to fast forward what that's that project that group of reporters that are known as the Arizona Project or rather you know, legendary in journalism. And when Bailey was killed, my first response to it and the response of some other people who who know that journalism history was, we need to do the same thing here. We need to send the same kind of response to Bailey's death um, as was sent to Bold's death. And we were able to reach that decision fairly quickly because it became very readily apparent within hours of Mr. Bailey's death that he was killed to stop the publication of a story. Um, mm-hmm. I remember I got a phone call from a source of mine in Oakland. I was working out in, in Contra Costa that morning. Um, in fact, I'd driven to work within a couple of blocks of the murder scene, but not seen it. And I got a call from a guy, and he told me, well, you know, the first rumor is, is that Chauncey was, um, there's some kind of love triangle going on. And people thought that Chauncey might have been killed um, because he was involved with a, a, a married woman or a woman with a boyfriend. Hmm. And a couple minutes later, my source called back and said, oh, no, that's not it. Now people think that he was in debt to a loan shark. Oh, my gosh. And, yeah, um, Chauncey worked at newspapers. So, like, a whole lot of us who work at newspapers, he... he kind of live paycheck to paycheck. And that made a little bit of sense to me. And then 
20 minutes later, but the source called back again, and he says, okay, now people are saying that Chauncey was working on a story about your black Muslim bakery. Mm-hmm. And that sort of instantly um, resonated. That, that sends up a red flag right there. Right, that sent up the red flag. That was it. Yeah. And within within hours after that, there was confirmation the publisher of his newspaper had confirmed the detectives that he was working on a story about your black Muslim bakery. And I don't think anyone doubted for a minute that from what anyone knew of that organization, that they, that they wouldn't kill a reporter you know, to stop a story. So that sort of became everybody's working thesis. And of course, the next morning, police, um, raided the bakery compound in North Oakland. Um, tragically, they'd been scheduled to do that two days earlier um, in response mm-hmm. to some other killings and another uh, the kidnapping and torture of a woman a few months earlier, right. um, and they postponed it. But when they went into the bakery the morning of August 3rd, they found the murder weapon, uh, the little shotgun that was used to kill Bailey, and within 24 hours had a confession, a very flawed confession from the, uh, from the trigger man. So it happened fairly quickly that we knew that Bailey was killed over a story that he was working on. And, uh, a group of people, uh, journalists, people from some journalism, nonprofits, um, people from the graduate school of journalism at Berkeley, San Francisco state, um, radio and TV stations uh, started to organize a response based on that model of the Arizona Project. Okay, let's take a quick break. Uh, We're going to return shortly with award-winning newspaper reporter Thomas Peel. We'll be right back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today, Tom Peel, newspaper reporter from the San Francisco Bay Area, has had probably a life-changing experience with a case that he'll be talking that he's talking about today killing the messenger the murder of Chauncey Bailey um, Tom tell us tell us who your black Muslim bakery was sure um, your black Muslim bakery was as the name implies a bakery um, and it was run by a family that practiced Within the black Muslim movement, um, the family had the surname Bey, B-E-Y. Um, and I, I say that because there are both people who are biological members of the family and what they called spiritually adopted members of the family who took that surname. It had begun in the early 1970s. It was formed or opened by a man who was born with the name Joseph Stevens. And a few years earlier in Southern California, he had become a member of the Nation of Islam. And for a while, while living in Santa Barbara, he was known as Joseph X. Stevens. Um, He and his brother ran a mosque within the Nation of Islam in Santa Barbara. In August of 1968, two members of that mosque, uh, husband and wife, were shot and killed in their bed after someone broke into their apartment. Um, turns out that those people had complained to the Nation of Islam headquarters in Chicago that Joseph X. Stevens and his brother, Billy X. Stevens, um, were committing some fraud crimes and urging members of the mosque to do the same thing. That double murder was never solved, and the Stevens brothers left Santa Barbara shortly thereafter, and they came, they returned to Oakland. They had been uh, had spent a good portion of their childhoods in Oakland. Their father had migrated west um, at the start of World War II after President Roosevelt desec- uh, opened the shipyards to uh, mm-hmm. African-American workers. So they knew Oakland, and in the early 70s, they came back to Oakland. At that point, uh, Joseph X. Stevens decided that he no longer wanted to be a member of the Nation of Islam but he wanted to practice the Nation of Islam's religion. So he broke away, and he opened this bakery in North Oakland with the name Your Black Muslim Bakery, and he continued to pursue the belief system, but as an independent black Muslim. He had had clearly broken off, and he had his reasons for doing that. One, he wanted... uh, he wanted to keep all the money that his bakery generated for himself. A great deal of money within the Nation of Islam flowed up to Chicago and to its then leader, Elijah Muhammad. And while Bay adored Elijah Muhammad, he didn't want to give him his money. And the other secret that Bay had uh, was that he very much wanted um, to run a polygamist organization. Mm-hmm. He... Uh, he was married. He had some children by his legal wife. But within what quickly descended into a, into a cult, he began to uh, 
anoint women to be his so-called spiritual wives. And mm-hmm. over the next couple of decades, he had more than 45 children um, with a series of women with whom he lived within his compound uh, as a polygamist. And when and he died a few years ago, he had child molestation charges pending right, against him. Right. When he, um, that's right. When he, he died in 2003, and he had, at that point, some women who had been teenage girls in his compound had come forward and said that he had been raping and molesting and, quite frankly, torturing them for years. And while the police were... Uh, always a little tentative in, in dealing with the Bays. Um, they got DNA evidence that showed that, that, that Yusuf Bay had fathered children with girls who were as young as 13 years old. Mm-hmm. And he was charged, and it was a huge case in Oakland, in part because several years earlier he'd had the hubris to run for mayor. So he was mm-hmm. very well known and, and rather feared in the community. Um, and suddenly it was coming out that he is uh that he was raping young girls and he died uh with that charge hanging over his head he died of aids in 2003 and um from there there was a succession of leadership within the uh the organization among several of his sons well and and that really was part of this case is because that disarray of who was going to be the leader Right, Bay. When he, when he when he had some young sons that he that he favored. A particular he had several, you know, not several, but many lines of children with these various uh, women within the cult, and he he very much favored this particular line. But the oldest son at the time was only twenty one, and and Bay was a bit of a pragmatist. Um, he knew that leaving a 21-year-old in charge of a of a great deal of money wasn't a good idea, so he appointed um, one of the men he had adopted as a as a spiritual son, who happened to be a CPA of all things, to be uh, the president of the organization and to control the purse strings, and he then appointed um, his 21-year-old son Antar to be the organization's spiritual face. They had a television show on local cable access in Oakland and around the Bay Area um, where they preached black Muslim dogma every week. And Son Antar would take that over, but this other gentleman would control the money. Well, within a few months, that gentleman who controlled the money uh, turned up missing. Um, Mm -hmm. And several months after that, his body was found in a shallow grave at a dog park in East Oakland. And young Antar Bay, um, very quickly, when the man uh, turned up missing, um, made his claim to be to control both the spiritual and financial aspects of the business and the cult. Um, I mean, within a matter matter of days, and it later came out that there were some forged corporate documents and falsified minutes of corporate meetings that uh, that put him in charge. Um, so now, and this is early 2004, 
he's controlling both the the spiritual aspect of the black Muslim religion and also a great deal of money. Now, let me let me say, Tom, too, that uh, just for our listeners, mm-hmm. <coughs> excuse me, the Black Muslim Bakery wasn't just a bakery. They had retail stores. They had one in downtown Oakland. They And for anyone who has ever gone through the Oakland airport, they had a kiosk at the Oakland airport. Right. They had a kiosk at the airport. They had a concession stand at the Oakland Coliseum where the A's and Raiders play. Mm-hmm. They had retail outlets. Across the Bay Area, at at one point, this was a um, you know this was a major commercial operation that made a great deal of money. Now, having said that, when Bay was alive, uh, the father in the eighties and nineties, he also was we now know was running was propping up the business with a great deal of public assistance fraud. He would all those women who had his children would leave his names off the birth certificates, and they would then claim uh, that the father of these children was non-existent, and they would apply for welfare, public assistance, uh, mm-hmm. women with indigent children. And it, it later came out that all of them were turning over thousands of dollars a month in welfare checks to Bay. So while he... The business appeared prosperous. It was also, you know, some of the underpinning was based on this public assistance fraud. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Yet there are, there are stores selling his baked goods all over the Bay Area. And and people love them. Actually, the baked goods were, were good. Think, Amazingly you know, so. That's what, you know, everybody says. And one of the, one of the, I think best points of the black Muslim religion, which is a very fictive version of Islam based on some, you know, what just outright fables um, about the history of people of color in the world. Uh, you know, uh, the the they, Elijah Muhammad was a uh, you know was a proponent of healthy foods, organic mm-hmm. foods, whole grains. Um, Lots of vegetables, no pork, very little beef, uh, chicken and fish. It was it was one of the uh, one of the better aspects of that of that movement was good nutrition, and that's what they capitalized on. Yeah, they had a great sweet potato pie. I have to say. Um, well, you know, at the end, uh, at, at the end when the bakery collapsed in two thousand seven, the uh, the health reports out of it were uh, were out of the building were were pretty bad. In I'm fact, sure that's but um, you know, I think prior to that, in the decades that they really that the business really prospered, um, you know, it was uh, you know it was a clean and productive place, and, and people did love the food. Yeah, and now um, they lived in a there. Many of them lived outside the compound, but there was a compound in North Oakland that many of them stayed at, and where right. where the search warrant was that you were talking about. Correct. Right. Yeah, the bakery, as we know, the bakery was downstairs, um, and there were uh, dwelling units upstairs and open onto a large kind of shielded backyard, and then it was near a, a corner, um, San Pablo Avenue and 59th Street. And they'd acquire, they bought a duplex in the back, 
so it kind of had a a, a bit of a, a right angle to it, um, and it allowed for the creation of a of a compound. He they could get cars in behind it and seal them off, and then they had the duplex on one side and the bakery building on the other, and it really um, it it shielded them very much. It was rather fortress like. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely was that. We're going to need to take another break, Tom. We'll be right back. Sure. All right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB Search gives you strength in numbers. With one click, you can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Thomas Peel is on the show today. Tom wrote the story called or the book rather called Killing the Messenger about the murder of Chauncey Bailey and John, the Chauncey Bailey project which so my next question for you Tom we got a little sidetracked there uh, tell us about the killing of Antar sure um, Antar Bay pulled into a gas station on an October night in 2005 um, he was filling up his BMW and he was talking on the phone and a little kind of short guy in a peacoat walked up behind him and pulled out a forty four caliber 
bulldog revolver and shot him once in the back and took off. And Antar died of that wound, and it appeared on its face to be a carjacking. Um, the gunman was caught on a security camera, kind of running around the car and ducking inside it and then taking off. And the keys were in Antar's pocket, and it appeared that on first blush that this guy was trying to steal this very expensive BMW. Mm-hmm. But um, he wasn't. He was actually uh, paid to kill Antar by Antar's younger brother, Yusuf Bey IV. Now, not to confuse your listeners with the fact that he is Yusuf Bey IV, his father, Yusuf Bey, had uh, a bit of George Foreman to him. He named five sons uh, after himself in numerical order. So fourth was the uh, fourth of five uh, who were named Yusuf, also named Yusuf Bey. And he became and he, known as, just as the fourth. Everybody called him the, the fourth. Right. Everybody just, call, everybody just called him the fourth, and I think I'll, I'll do that going forward as we talk about the, the story. Um, and fourth was, quite frankly, a, he was a, a maniac. And he was 19 years old at the time, and he didn't want to play second fiddle to his older brother. He was looking at a life of cooking fish sandwiches and being his brother's um, second-in-command. And and he didn't want that. He wanted to be in control of this organization. And suddenly, at 19 years old, he, wasn't, he was in control of the organization. And the fact that, that this was an organized hit on his brother um, did not emerge for years, and the government was prosecuted... Uh, it was prosecuted with the gunman painted as a as a carjacker. He uh, mm-hmm. he kept his mouth shut and is now serving a, a life term. But it put this 19 year old kid in charge of this organization. And one of the things that Antar had done uh, when he was in charge was borrow a great deal of money from a finance company, um, seven hundred thousand dollars. He wanted to expand the business. He wanted to open some stores in Los Angeles. And quite frankly, he wanted a lot of play money. Um, you know, he mm-hmm. bought that very expensive BMW with some of the proceeds from that loan. The problem with Yusuf Bey the Fourth, or there are many problems with Yusuf Bey the Fourth, is <laughs> excuse me, is that when he once he got in control of the organization, he had no idea how to run the business. I mean, this was a 19-year-old kid who had been whisked through high school by social promotion and who had lived his entire life in that compound in North Oakland where his father was revered as godlike and Mm -hmm. where he considered himself to be, in his words, the prince of the bakery. And now this young prince of the bakery was in charge. And he immediately stopped paying off this, this major loan that his brother had taken, and he also had so much arrogance that he stopped paying um, payroll taxes to the IRS. Just completely mm-hmm. ran this business, ran it, you know, off the grid, tried to take everything off the grid. And both the finance company and the IRS, of course, um, wanted their money. And a, a year short, just a, a year almost to the day of Antar's murder, Forth had to file for bankruptcy for this uh, for the bakery, 
Um, okay. He simply wasn't paying the bills, and he wanted all the money for himself. And filing for bankruptcy set everything on a particular on a particular path for what would happen. And um, eventually, a man who had been at the bakery, a spiritually adopted son of Baby Elder, um, started poking around in the bankruptcy case and wanted to try to get the business away from force. And eventually, that man went and talked to a newspaper reporter, Chauncey Bailey, about the fact that Forth was out of control and um, running this organization into the ground. Yeah. Now, l- let me just say that Chauncey Bailey sure. was an African-American man also, so it was a logical person for right. somebody to go to to uncover what was going on at the bakery. That's right. Um, you know, Chauncey Bailey had been a a reporter uh, for the Detroit News. He covered African-American affairs for the Oakland Tribune for almost a decade, and he had just recently been named editor of this small African-American-oriented newspaper, uh, the Oakland Post, which, you know, to be honest, was a little eight-page tabloid that was rather, you know, devoid of journalistic standards. But Bailey, who had, you know... Was encountering some of the, uh, some ethical problems of his own. It's the reason that he left the Oakland Tribune. He was fired there for some ethical breaches. He was really hoping uh, to turn that little newspaper around and make it more substantive. And when a a source came to him and offered a story about the bakery, he was very very eager to pursue that story. Sure. Now let's fast forward a little bit um, sure. to when um, a person, an individual, was actually arrested for Chauncey Bailey's murder. Right. And some very weird things happened after that. Yep. Um, the backstory there is that Forth found out that Bailey was working on a story about the bakery, and before it was published, he was, Bailey was having problems getting that story published. The, the owner of the Oakland Post, a man named Paul Cobb, didn't want to publish that story. He was very aware that the Bays were a very violent organization, and he was very cautious about going forward with that story. Fourth found out that Bailey was working on that story, and on August 2nd, he sent two guys out with a shotgun with orders that they were to take Bailey out before the story was finished. They caught up to him, walked walking to work that morning and killed him. Now, I said earlier... Now, that let me just supposed- say, this, yeah. this is downtown Oakland. This is not very far from the uh, Superior Courthouse. No, it's not. It's within a couple of blocks of the Superior Courthouse and yeah. even a closer distance from the county administration building. I mean, this was, this was right downtown on a 725 on a bright Thursday morning. Um, they were... They were incredibly arrogant that they could they could get away with this murder in broad daylight. Um, but as I said earlier, police were scheduled to serve a search warrant at the bakery um, two days earlier. There had been two other murders in the summer of 2007, and police strongly believed that members of the bakery were responsible for that. There was also a several-month-long investigation of a kidnapping case in which uh, Forth was the mastermind. Um, that had gone 
sideways on him. Very luckily, a woman escaped with her life. So police were finally, after years of indifference and fear about the bays, moving to do something. But they moved about 48 hours too late, and Bailey was killed. When they went into the bakery the morning of August 3rd, they found a young man named Devondre Broussard, who happened to be in possession of a little 12-gauge shotgun that had killed Bailey. In fact, he was seen throwing it out a window as police stormed the compound. Um, so now they had the gun in somebody's hands. They also had some ballistics uh, tests that showed shells found next to Bailey's body were fired by that shotgun, and they had linked, also linked that shotgun to another shooting months earlier in which the Bays were involved. So they knew they had the gun, and they had the kid who threw it out the window. Um, and after a great deal of back and forth with detectives, he confessed to killing Bailey, but he told innumerable lies in that confession by claiming that the murder was his own enterprise, that he had found out that Bailey was working on a story, and he, on his own, decided that the thing to do was to kill this journalist to silence that story. And, of course, that was an absolute falsehood. Um, and that and among, confession wasn't done without influence. No, influence. it wasn't. Um, in fact, one of the very strange things that happened um, in the aftermath of Bailey's murder was this. When this young man decided to, at first, denied having anything to do with the killing, um, detectives brought Yusuf Bey IV, who had also been arrested, into the interrogation room with him. And for about 17 or 18 minutes, according to the detective's notes, they used Bay Fourth to try to badger this young man, Devondre Bessard, into confessing. Um, and this was a real high-stakes game at that moment, because at any sense, and at any time when Fourth was in the room, Bessard could have blurted out that Bay Fourth ordered him to kill Chauncey Bailey, but he didn't. Um, and then he asked the detectives if he could speak to Bayforth alone, and the detectives somehow decided that that would be a good idea, and they left <laughs> these two guys together in a room that had no recording equipment in it. They went out, they shut the door, they didn't put a tape, hide a tape recorder or a digital recorder anyplace. They claimed later that there was no place to do that. The room was not wired, um, and for seven minutes, Bayforth convinced Devondre Bessard to give a flawed confession, to say that he, yes, he had killed Chauncey Bailey, but to leave Forth out of it. And Forth promised him money to do that. He promised him that he'd pay for a defense attorney. And he essentially promised him, uh, oh, the cops will just give you manslaughter. I know that they'll just give you manslaughter. You'll be out in two years and I'll make you rich. Mm. After seven minutes, the detectives pulled Forth out of the room. They went in, turned the recorder on, and Broussard gave his statement uh, in which he claimed that he killed Chauncey Bailey of his own accord. And, of course, the uh, first thing he said was, cops said, what happened? And he said, I shot him. And in Oakland, especially in a city with a high murder rate and a habitually understaffed police department and an understaffed homicide division, those three words were golden. I and shot that's him. That's all you need. Yep. yep. That's it. And after that, everything else that came out of, you know, Broussard 
the, the tale was just incredible. I mean, he said he figured this all out himself. He figured out where Chauncey Bailey lived. I mean, this kid was from San Francisco. He didn't know his way around Oakland. He didn't even know how to drive, yet he claimed he borrowed a, a van and, and drove to the murder scene. He claimed that the shotgun was his, even though police knew that Bayforth had stolen that shotgun almost two years earlier and had ballistics evidence that showed it had been used um, in another shooting. So it was an incredibly flawed confession, but it had those three little magic words in it. I shot yeah, him. I did it. And okay. We need to, Tom, we need to take another break. I'm sorry. Uh, sure. Just one moment. We'll be right back. Okay. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Talking today about the murder of Chauncey Bailey, a newspaper reporter in Oakland, California, and what then developed as the Chauncey Bailey Project over this incredible web of multiple murders and, and multiple corruption in all kinds of areas regarding your black Muslim bakery. Tom, um, so you now have DeAndre Bassard confessing to the murder and influenced by Yusuf Bey IV who now, of course, has completely taken over the enterprise. Then it starts to unravel. What happens next? Well, after Broussard said those three magic words, I shot him, this investigation was effectively over. Um, You know, the cynical position is that police don't get extra points or extra clearance rates for charging more than one person with a murder. Um, and Oakland has a very dismal clearance rate on homicides, and it especially did in that in the year of 2007. 
So there wasn't a great deal of effort put into furthering the investigation um, of what happened to Chauncey Bailey. And this was the murder of a newspaper reporter to stop him from doing his job. And that, of course, spoke volumes to other journalists. And it, frankly, should have spoken in more volume um, to Oakland itself and to the northern... to everybody in Northern California and everybody in the country, because Mm -hmm. this is a very Mm -hmm. rare thing that a reporter would be killed to stop the publication of a story. What this murder really was, was a direct assault on Chauncey Bailey's First Amendment rights and the right of of a free press. And you guys guys became incensed with this. And I I have to give you credit, Tom. The work that you all did, it kept the... Oakland Police Department's feet to the fire. You know, we did. Um, we tried to do that. We released fairly early in the investigation audio of Devondre Bessard's recorded flawed confession. And it just, it simply defied common sense. Um, for him to claim that he acted on his own was counter to how the how the the bakery and the bays and the black Muslims in a larger context organized themselves. It was a military like organization. There was a clear leader. In fact, it later came out bizarrely that Fourth required all the men in the organization to salute him when they were <laughs> inside inside the bakery compound, and he wore a you know he wore a sidearm like a commanding officer. Um, so it just was, it, it just made absolutely no sense that Broussard would take on something of his own enterprise. He called himself a soldier. He said he killed Chauncey Bailey because he wanted to be a good soldier. Now, what the soldiers do, they follow orders. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very clear to us that Bayforth had ordered this murder to stop this story, yet he wasn't being charged with it. Now, he was charged in the kidnapping and torture case that I've spoken about, and he faced a life without possibility of parole sentence for that. And as we continued to probe this and we continued to ask questions about why Bayforth was not charged in this murder, you know, eventually we got the rather cynical response from the district attorney at the time that, well, he's going to go to prison on this. He's going to face uh, life without parole in this kidnapping case. So why should we use precious resources to pursue him for a murder when he's already going to go to prison? Mm-hmm. And that did not sit well with the journalistic community. It didn't sit well at all because it basically said that this punk could get away with ordering the murder of a journalist, that he would not be held accountable for it. And regardless of whether he spent the rest of his life in prison in this other case or not, he would have gotten away with ordering a reporter killed. He would not be held accountable for that. And that was very frightening to journalists, to those of us who knew and what it, was well, happening. Well, it should be. Case. It should be frightening to all of us. Right. That somebody should be killed for speaking the truth. Right. And we... Um, you know, we kept this story alive. We kept getting, I, I can now, because it's been, he's publicly said it in, in open court to a judge, 
Devondre Broussard's defense lawyer leak a great deal of information about this case to the media. Um, he did that because he's a, he's a man in his in his 80s whose faculties were failing a little bit, and he simply had he was um, in many ways Devondre Broussard couldn't have had a less effective lawyer, but then who eventually convinced him to turn state's evidence um, after building a great deal of momentum toward charges and a great deal of public exposure about the inner workings of this homicide and the investigation behind it uh, by leaking um, documents to reporters and not just the Chauncey Bailey project. He leaked a great deal of information also to the, to the San Francisco Chronicle, which wasn't part of our project, but did a, a you know, a, great deal of very good reporting about Bailey's murder as well. So it built um, a large degree of, of momentum, and among the things that eventually came out was a videotape of Bay Forth that police had clandestinely made in a holding cell in which he laughed about Chauncey Bailey's murder, laughed about it, made fun of yeah. it. Um, didn't say that he was involved, but clearly gave that impression. And once we got that and we put that on the Internet, things began to change, and um, the district attorney's office began a sort of reinvestigation of Bailey's murder that eventually led to the indictment of Yusuf Bay IV um, and also a guy named Antoine Mackey who had gone out and was Broussard's getaway driver the morning of August 2nd, 2007. And we should say that um, the fourth is now serving life in prison without parole. Yep, he was con- he was convicted of ordering Bailey's murder and ordering the uh, the murder of um, two other men in 2007. And he is uh, just so yesterday that he's been transferred out of out of San Quentin to another maximum security prison in California. Um, he's uh, He's appealing the conviction, but he's down on three consecutive uh, life terms without parole. Yeah. And the, your black Muslim bakery no longer exists. The compound no, is it, closed. It, it was, yeah, it was liquidated in the bankruptcy uh, proceeding, ironically, the day after Bailey was killed. Um, and the bays are kind of scattered. There's one small organization of some of the men who considered themselves to be Bay the Elders, uh, spiritually adopted sons um, operating in Oakland, but they uh, they seem to be steering clear of, uh, you know, crimes or wrongdoing at this point, as far as we can tell. So, Tom, we just have a minute left, and I, sure. you know, I could talk to you for hours, actually. Um, I should say that you are going to be speaking at the uh, meeting at in Oakland, California, on April 27th at the... Uh, luncheon for the California Association of Licensed Investigators. And so anybody that is interested in attending that, uh, Tom will have his books there, and I'm sure he'll autograph them if we are really nice to him. Uh, <laughs> but I, I guess the message is uh, the First Amendment rules. And, you know, if, uh, if somebody gets um, shot down in the street for um, just telling the story and doing their job, then... Um, the Chauncey Bailey Project or a project like that by newspaper reporters will take it on. You know, hopefully this will, will not happen again. I mean, the two times that it's occurred um, in the past almost 40 years, there's been an overwhelming journalistic response that is, you know, kind of 
that has achieved the goal of covering the hell out of out of what happened when a reporter is killed and you know sending the message that if you think you're going to avoid scrutiny by killing a reporter um you're wrong of course no one thought it would happen after don Bowles was was killed and we're certainly hoping it doesn't happen again after chauncey bailey was killed well you guys get a lot of credit thank you tom for being on the show um so tune in again folks next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators and tom Peel is certainly a real investigator. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. PIs Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time here on the Voice America Variety Channel.